0: October 4th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are only three known contagious cancers in the wild that affect vertebrates. And the Tasmanian devil has two of them. Poor devils. The kind of cancer is in fact facial cancer. I have no further news on this. Let's in fact pivot to Belarus, or Switzerland. A court in Switzerland has acquitted a Belarusian man who has been charged with the forced disappearance of three prominent opposition figures back in 1999. Not just charged, he admitted to it. It was a very odd case. Yuri Garovsky confessed to being part of a hit squad in Belarus that forcibly abducted, is there really any other kind of abduction, prominent members of the country's opposition, the Swiss judge Wasn't buying the guy's own confession. Maybe translation problems were involved. That was Garafsky's explanation. He used the confession as part of an asylum plea. Did a lot of media. Yes, I was part of the Hit Squad. Not the worst part of the Hit Squad called the Sober Unit. But, you know, they did bad things. I did some less bad things. Please don't throw me in jail. And the Swiss didn't. The Sober Squad. Sober is a Russian acronym corresponding to the Special Rapid Response unit, or sober, which is funny. Well, it's deadly and horrific, but funny, considering how often Russians and Belarusian forces are not sober. Here's a headline out of Poland from a couple of years ago. Poland's defense ministry has published a video allegedly showing a visibly intoxicated Belarusian officer asking his Polish counterparts oh, for cigarettes.
1: Cigarettes, uh, Palma, I give you, and you give me I give you
0: Belarusian cigarettes Palmal, and you give me Palmal cigarettes Poland. Uh, in Luckily for us, the oh, okay. Belarusian speaks English. <laughs> Not that well. The guy was quite helpful in that we can now, to English hearing ears, ascertain, was he drunk or just really after cigarettes? We know one thing, didn't seem that terribly sober. The families of the disappeared members of the Belarusian opposition told the BBC that the Swiss judge's ruling was bizarre, quote, perhaps the judge had his own logic different to common sense, or perhaps he wasn't, you know, sober. On the show today, describing political parties as right or left, or in the case of one Slavinkian party, coming up with a shorter version of their official name, which is Alano and Friends, Ordinary People, Independent Candidates, Nova, Free and Responsible, Pachaval Roma, Hungarians Vivek, which means heart, and Christian Union and for the people. We're gonna do better. We're gonna we're gonna punch that one up a little bit. But first, as far as sports writers go, Sally Jenkins is something of a national treasure, a columnist for the Washington Post. She's written a dozen or so books. Her latest is The Right Call, what sports teaches us about work and life, and she takes the lessons she's learned from great athletes and applies them to us. Not great athletes, unless, you know, Michael Phelps happens to be listening. We talk Andy Reid, the Mannings, Derek Cheater, and more Sally Jenkins next. Sally Jenkins is one of the greats, one of the greatest sports writers and has been for years and years and years. She's out with a new book called The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. And it's really good. It works on a couple levels, even if you don't like sports. But I have to tell you, if you do, it's even better. Sally, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. Is this how were you thinking these thoughts and organizing all the many conversations you had with coaches and athletes over the years in a, oh, I see the application in the real world kind of way, putting it in the back of your mind. And that's how the book was born.
1: That really is how it was born. I mean, the, the $64,000 question whenever you're watching a big sporting event is, well, what does this mean for me? You know, uh, <laughs> am I just supposed to be awed by this yeah, or, yeah. Uh, you know, is there something is there something exportable from great athletes? You know, that's, I think that's in the back of all of our minds, really. You know, we watch a Michael Phelps or a Michael Jordan or a Patrick Mahomes and, you know, Mahomes is this sort of fabulously superhero elastic athlete. And you wonder, okay, is there anything he's doing that I could possibly emulate, you know, (laughs) in, in any way. And so that was sort of the seed of the the book. I've been, that question's been nagging at me for a lot of years.
0: Yeah. I guess the question, I guess the answer to Mahomes and Steph Curry and Federer is they're eating Subway sandwiches, which is the one (laughs) thing we have in common. And
1: and Papa John's pizzas.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Which is the lie because they're probably not. (laughs) (laughs)
1: uh so let's
0: okay you know you mentioned mahomes and i'm fascinated by mahomes we all are but an early anecdote is about andy reed so andy Reid is mahomes coach and he and mahomes like all great coaches and quarterbacks in the nfl there was interplay between them and they made each other great but you take us to a moment in andy reed's life which could be seen as a moment of failure and i want to ask you a question about that but just tell us why you chose that moment as an inflection point.
1: Okay. So I covered this game. I mean, a lot of these things I was, I was at right. And, um, and it struck me at the time. So the Kansas city chiefs had the new England Patriots and Tom Brady on the ropes in Kansas city in the final couple of minutes of the AFC championship game uh, with a berth uh, in the super bowl on the line. And uh, they intercept Tom Brady uh, and Suddenly, there's a, a yellow flag on the field, uh, offsides, and a guy named Deep Ford had lined up literally four inches offsides uh, on the play, and it negates the interception. Brady gets the ball back, drives the Patriots to a touchdown to tie the game and force overtime, and the Patriots win in overtime to go to the Super Bowl. And after the game, Reed really could have scapegoated Deep Ford. The whole the whole team could have scapegoated scapegoated deep forward and something else happens and I remember it uh, so vividly, Andy Reed said, look, we all could have been four inches better. yeah uh, and it, it set the tone for the entire franchise for the next year and it became kind of their mantra four inches better, you know uh, and they really work that way that when you know really great organizations they don't scapegoat, they don't blame and they the last thing they do is bitch about the officials right? Yeah. Uh, if you hear a team bitching about the officiating, you can be almost certain they're not going to be in the big one again next year. And so the next year, guess what happens? The Kansas City Chiefs get to the Super Bowl and they win it. And when when Andy Reid is asked afterwards, you know, what was the difference in your team? And he said, we just all worked for the, the four inches. You know, yeah. we all were just four inches of, of, of better. He said, we worked at it every single day. And uh, that was pretty... It was pretty interesting to me because so much of the time, I think, what the audience wants from these people is the magic bullet, instead of the one to two percent margin, which is what you can really take for, from them, is their their attitude and their patience and their willingness to work uh, over the longer haul, as opposed to wanting to just get it all done right now. You know, wanting to change everything right here in the moment. Uh, Andy Reid spent a year, you know, working on his team's mentality. So
0: when Andy Reid was in Philadelphia, he came close to a Super Bowl and there's Donovan McNabb as opposed to Pat Mahomes as his quarterback. And you could, you know, he got a lot of blame. Whenever you do anything but win a championship in Philadelphia, you get a lot of blame. And it was, just so my audience understands, it was often concentrated on late game situations, fourth down situations, clock management. And that seemed, I I remember at the time, the idea was this guy is one of the great offensive geniuses, but this is just a weakness. And I think it was presented as, eh, it's always going to be a weakness. How do you really correct that weakness? And so much of your book is about what the great athletes, coaches, competitors do is they address the weakness. They don't just play to their strengths, right? Reed doesn't just design 400 more plays to get a guy open on first down. He really goes at what is least comfortable for him.
1: Yeah, and and one of those things was organization. He's just a much more organized coach. I think in general, in his thought process, in his deliberations, he's got process that he follows. And that's where they're different from you and me. Okay. It's not that they're born with these great genetic gifts or extraordinary brains, although there's certainly, you know, that's a fractional factor here. But. What I will say is that all the people I've covered, what they all have in common is their level of organization compared to me, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh, that's the main thing I've taken from them is how to become so much more deliberate and so much more organized in how I work, how I examine my own weaknesses and what I then do about those weaknesses.
0: Well, I was going to say, I don't want to know about your organization with remembering where the car keys are or your shopping or like your uh, (laughs) grocery schedule, but tell me about the one thing you're... And also, I don't know about Peyton Manning's organization with those things, but what about your writing organization, your approach to your craft? Is that actually very organized and methodical like these great athletes?
1: It is now. It wasn't in my 20s and 30s. It's profound. I mean, I can't tell you how profoundly these athletes have affected how I go about my work. I mean, I I prepare much better now. I mean, I used to go into a press box in my 20s. Half the time I was maybe a little hungover because on the road you go out to dinner with friends and catch up and maybe have a little too much wine or another cocktail. Uh, you know, eat a big breakfast in the hotel, which is actually terrible for your brain. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I started thinking about how to perform under pressure just like they do, you know? And what I do is I uh I spend a lot of time reading uh press conferences from previous or interviews from earlier in the week and getting a bunch of material ready at my fingertips that I can cut and paste into the story as far as observations or quotes so that I'm not necessarily having to write 1,200 words on command in 90 minutes on deadline at night when I'm tired. I've already got five to 600 words that are pretty good that I'm pretty sure are going to be relevant. I write different versions of those 600 words. Uh, One may hold up, one may not. I may have to throw it away, but it's a better feeling at 845 at night than not having anything. You know, you're only as good as your material. I mean, it's really hard to think up something out of your own head, just sitting there with a blank page. You know, Mm. when you, when you have good interviews and good reporting and good knowledge, uh, in your arsenal, in your, in your, you know, quiver, uh, you're, you're just a better archer. Yes. But Oh, only
0: good is your material. Maybe people are saying that. Ah, so the AFC Championship game where D. Ford is offsides—great material, great drama. You know that great material is what you make of it. So you'll go to the last game or second to last game of the season—a meaningless game where Eli Manning will be performing before a bunch of uh, Giants fans who didn't even who couldn't get rid of the tickets. And my point is that this could be great material. You had this con- concept, this conceptual scoop of i am going to follow along eli to show you what greatness is even when the stakes are saying this isn't the moment where greatness will rise
1: yes because by then i mean that was just three or four years ago i think and and that game the game is it's the i think it's really eli manning's last game as a new york giant i think he retires uh um he he the the team doesn't bring him back right i mean it's obvious eli's done as a giant and um and, and the team was horrible. I mean, I think they, I don't know, did they win one, two game? I forget what their record was, but uh, Steve Spagnuolo is on the field as interim coach because they fired the guy who started the season as head coach. And it, it's just a mess, right? The whole thing is just a mess. And, um, you know, how Eli, I i, I knew what he was going to try to do that day. He was going to try to show who he was, you know? And, um, uh, so it, it wasn't the, the most mysterious, uh, column subject in the world, but I really wanted to try to describe, this is what real professionalism is. And this is what it really looks like. Uh, and I, it was really kind of, I wanted to write about, you know, about that. And, uh, and he, he, he played up to the column idea. Fortunately, <laughs> he really did. He, he was a hell of a performance under the circumstances. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a great performance, but it was the very best he could do on that day, yeah, um, and so it was. It was interesting to write. I mean, it's not always the great ones and the big wins that are the most interesting things. I mean, the the one thing I try to impress on people in the right call is how much failure has shaped these people. Uh, that's a really missing factor when we try to analyze them. You know, we think of Peyton Manning or Eli Manning as having having come. You know. That you broke the cellophane on them and they were ready made, you know, like dolls or something, and that's just not true. Uh, there's a, a a world of of weakness and flaw uh, in every great athlete I've ever covered, and what's really admirable about them is is again the way the candor with which they acknowledge those flaws and work on them. Yeah, everybody forgets that Peyton Manning, his third year in the league, his record in the, as an NFL player was 32 and 32. And he led the league in interceptions two of those three years. Manning literally had to cure that intercept. That interception problem was big. He wasn't going to get much farther, right? If he didn't get a hold, if he did not get a grip on the interception problem. And they really had to analyze it and figure out, okay, is it physical? Is it mental? Uh, Is it a combination of both? What's going on here? Um, And so Tony Dungy and Jim Caldwell Manning would give them all the credit in the world because they really helped him sort through that. You know, you can't see yourself when you're standing in the middle of crisis.
0: Peyton Manning knew if he couldn't solve his interception problem, he wasn't going anywhere in this league. And then he did. But he didn't. Tell me about how he defined solving it. It wasn't just things he did as a rookie.
1: Yeah, that was fascinating. Solving it never ended, did it? Well, no, I mean, as, as he, as he put it to me for the book, when I, when I talked to him for the book, I said, let's, let's talk about, I said, I didn't realize this Peyton, but you were 32 and 32, right? You're a 500 quarterback. And he said, yeah. And he said, you know, it was kind of like, okay, who am I going to be? You know, it was indeterminate, right? It was yet to be determined, defined. And so, you know, he, he had a lot of self-definition still ahead of him. So you know he starts by uh, with Jim Caldwell and Tony Dungy, his new coaches. He starts by looking at film of every single interception he had thrown in his NFL career up to that point, every single one. And then he said, "We went to a tape that was kind of a hidden tape, and it was the film of all of the throws that he made that should have been intercepted but weren't yeah. because he got a little lucky. You know, a defender maybe dropped it, or uh, you know, a receiver made an unbelievable catch." and bailed him out. Uh, but he had made the wrong decision. And then they went through, uh, they went through, you know, pretty much every bad play, but also every bad play that maybe you and me don't notice. Right. But they knew better. Okay. They knew that he had violated what they were trying to do on the field. And then they started walking him through his decisional process on every one of those plays because they had to find out his intention, Mm. you know, he had to ask himself what was i doing on that you know did i as as he as he told me he said you know <clears throat> there's the interception where you you're trying to make a play and the guy is there and you just you just make a bad throw or for whatever reason and then there's the throw that's a bad judgment that you think you can fit it in uh and so you overforce or you you know you you you, you do something that you really shouldn't have when you should have taken a safer underneath pattern, but it was a little bit of ego's gotten you go, I think I can, I think I can thread this one in there, you know, when, when something more sensible is available. Right. And so he started sorting through all of those decisions. And it, it turned out that he was taking too much responsibility. He wanted to make a big play on every play. Mm-hmm. And he felt he had to carry the team in some ways. Uh, some of it was, was the burden of responsibility He felt like you know, he'd gotten this big contract. He was this big draft pick who's supposed to reverse the fortunes of this team. And, um, had to slowly, but surely teach him some math and say, look, when you make that play, you're costing us opportunities. You think you're going to create a bigger opportunity, but in fact, you know, what you're doing is you're costing us 15 or 16 more plays, you know, and do the math, do the math on, you know, when you, when you rob us of 15 offensive plays, you're, 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 negating our ability to do a lot of damage to the opposition, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and so he had to kind of slowly, but surely breadcrumb Peyton's thinking that way, uh, and teach him to be a, 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 more sound, uh, more conservative decision maker to a certain extent. I want, okay.
0: So here's one of the fascinating things of the book If people heard, you talk about Peyton Manning and they say, okay, a lesson or one lesson is obsessive attention to detail, going over that game film again and again and again, thinking about not just that game film, inventing new game film that I no one had ever thought to look at before. And then you have Derek Jeter. And Derek Jeter is in the chapter of the book about discipline. And it's about how every game no matter when it ended that guy was in bed two hours later other lesser players weren't but i do know derek jeter and from covering derek jeter you would ask derek jeter um what is your approach to hitting and he would say and mean see the ball swing at the ball he was just very instinctive he never looked at tape he wasn't like there, there are other hitters with similar profiles Tony Gwynn always looked at tape and I guess the lesson there is not everything in the book not every lesson about candor or discipline or preparation applies to every athlete but you these athletes or these great performers have to or eventually learn to know themselves so for Jeter it wasn't about looking at game film but it was just about the routinization of his life during the baseball season.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he learned uh, he learned how to manage himself. I mean, again, this is what most of them do, uh, you know. But look, especially for a guy like Jeter, the pressure of repeating the performance becomes a, an opponent in its own right. Okay, like <clears throat> these guys play with a lot of anxiety, and uh, the the best person I've ever heard explain this is the agent Scott Boris you have a great season and people start to expect that season and they want that season again. And then they want it again. And then they want it again and they really judge you. And the anxiety of that starts to mount. And so a lot of what these guys, the great ones do is they, they, they learn to manage it. And they, they really understand what conditions are likely to create their most solid performance. Right. And they create those time and time and time and time again, whereas the rest of us, um, don't necessarily understand why we were good on that day. We don't know. I mean, I remember a, an editor saying to me, that was a good story. Do you understand why? Mm-hmm. Do you, as a very young writer, I had an, an editor say that it was such a smart thing to say. Do you understand why that was a good story? You know, do you understand what you did there? Um, uh, and, and the truth is that I didn't necessarily entirely, but I got a clearer idea by studying myself and my work. And so Derek Jeter understood what conditions you can't be great every night out you just can't you can't be great every season out you can't it's humanly impossible what you can do is create the conditions for yourself that make it more likely maybe than not that you're gonna turn in a good performance and sometimes then you turn in great ones
0: so i get uh, i could ask you so many questions but I, one of the last questions i have is you one reads this book and gets inspiration and hopefully draws some inspirational uh, lessons for their own life be they a writer or whatever they do in their own life and then you might even say to yourself you know who would argue with this this is about achieving excellence but it does seem to me that society and not just uh, the the lazy tempting eat the uh, second helpings of the breakfast buffet society before the big game. But Saudi overall has a lot of self-help books with exactly the opposite message. Or there are big lessons, you know, maybe economic lessons about things like quiet quitting and knowing your own worth, or yes, you are a badass, or, you know, accept yourself for being good enough and the power of letting go. And all of those I'm sure have good lessons in them. But it does seem we're in a little bit of a if you want to be kind push and pull if you want to be grandiose about it you know some sort of conflict between the pursuit of excellence which can have a downside a downside of obsession and a downside of work-life balance the that which you write about in your book and then so much else of what the lesson of you know what some people call late capitalism or at least life in 2023 is
1: yeah, I mean, look, it, it comes at a price, right? There's no question about that. It comes sometimes at a very heavy price. Uh, but I, you know, look, I think the thing <clears throat> that a lot of people misunderstand, especially Type A hard chargers in offices, they don't understand the amount of recovery time uh, and the amount of pacing themselves that the great ones do, like a Derek Jeter. Athletes take extraordinarily good care of themselves. Uh, they just do, they get a lot of rest. They get a lot of massages, uh, a lot of them meditate. I mean, they do all kinds of things that help themselves, you know, and, and the rest of us think that being a big performer in the moment or a big high pressure performer is to just like overwork, overcharge, you know, over strive. Uh, and, and one of the big takeaways that I, I took from the right call is just the measuredness of these guys approaches. What's different about them? What, what is really sort of out of, um, proportion with them is the amount of time they're willing to devote to tedium yeah. <laughs> that the rest of us aren't. Uh, they have a tolerance for tedium. Uh, so I think that's that's a big difference. I mean, uh, you know, you have to decide what your priorities are. You have to decide. Uh, you know, I, I think it's perfectly true that you can have a great life and yet be obsessed by a pursuit that gives you uh, great, great gratification that you spend your life around. I do it. You know, uh, being a sports writer means working every weekend and and most of it happens at night and you have to commit to driving against the traffic of ordinary life. You just do.
0: Sally Jenkins is a Washington Post columnist and feature writer, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She was the first woman to be inducted into the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Hall of Fame and her book is The Right Call: What Sports Teach Us about Work and Life. Sally, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. It was was really interesting. I enjoyed being here.
0: And now the spiel. The ouster of Kevin McCarthy was orchestrated by a few personalities, eight exactly. They're sometimes described by a catch-all phrase as was the case with Nora O'Donnell's coverage on CBS
1: historic vote unfolding in the House as Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy faces a leadership challenge from the far-right faction of his own party. And while this is generally true,
0: it's also untrue for a few of the defectors and more true of some of McCarthy's defenders. I don't know if Matt Gates is hard, right? If you read a few of the charges against him over the years, he's too often hard, right? But not all eight defectors were the assortment of names could read like a list of star wars side characters you've got biggs buck good crane mace gates and then you've got rosendale and Burchett. but biggs good gates crane rosendale and birchett those guys are so right they're wrong But, you know, some representatives like Brian Babin and Ralph Norman are further to the right ideologically than those guys are, and they voted for McCarthy. And two of the very right-wing members of the House that we all know, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, also backed McCarthy, Taylor Greene, quite vociferously. But Nancy Mace did not. And Ken Buck was one of the eight voting for his ouster. Ken Buck voted to certify the election, and he took a lot of flack for it. Ken Buck is vocally opposed to the current investigation of Joe Biden, one of the few Republicans in the House who's been that vocal about it. And I think he's right. And he's doing it out of principle. And I respect him for doing so. Ken Buck was asked on a radio show about Marjorie Taylor Greene's criticism of him from the right. And here's how he answered. She's criticized me for, uh, you you know, um, voting to... Uh, certify the election in 2020. The Constitution says Congress shall count the votes. It doesn't say Congress may overturn an election result. It doesn't say Congress can do whatever the heck it wants with this election. Shall count the votes. That's what the Constitution says. In her CrossFit class, maybe they didn't cover that. And then also, the Constitution also says that uh, you know the the impeachment of a president shall be based on treason, high crimes, misdemeanors. It doesn't say it's a political exercise, right. and, and we hope the it does the right thing. Um, and so I, I get tired of people. One of the beauties of Congress is you bring 435 people together from different backgrounds, and, and you try to reach a consensus on issues. When you've got people who care more about their social media accounts than they do about the Constitution, we have a real problem in Congress. And then there's Nancy Mace. Or here was Nancy Mace on Meet the Press soon after the January 6th riot.
1: I literally had to walk through a crime scene where that young woman was shot and killed to get into the chamber to vote uh, that night to certify what was supposed to be a
0: ceremonial uh, vote to certify the Electoral College. And yet my colleagues continued to object and they knew this was a failing motion. These objections were not going to work and they were unconstitutional. Um, And so it is enormously disappointing. It's one of the reasons I've been such a strong voice to point out the lies uh, that have happened. Congress had no business overturning the Electoral College and neither did the Vice President. Nancy Mace, by the way, was targeted by Donald Trump, who inspired an opponent against her, which Mace defeated in her re-election campaign, but it just points out that the following description as offered by Joy Reid on MSNBC is also not true.
1: Has successfully ignited a war between the MAGA wing and the
0: Ultra MAGA wing. It's a quippy zing, but it's not accurate. Of course, One problem is that it's very hard these days to map right or conservative or left or liberal onto modern American politics. Actually, it's not just American politics. This is all getting scrambled the world over. The Slovakian elections were a day or two ago, and they were won by Robert Fizzo. Here's France 24's analyst Doug Herbert telling us about Robert Fizzo's party and its appeal if I'm elected, he, very social conservative, um, you know, against LGBTQ rights, against uh, minority women's rights, uh, you know, a very nationalist, populist message that hit a raw nerve in a Slovakia that, let's not forget, remains, even though it's been staunchly pro-EU and pro-NATO in recent years, is a staunchly conservative country at heart. And here is how German broadcaster DW brought its viewers news of the election.
1: Former Slovakian Prime Minister Robert Fico's leftist party has won Slovakia's parliamentary elections after campaigning on a pro Russia platform.
0: Right, or maybe left. So Fico is pro Russian, certainly anti aiding the war in Ukraine. So maybe that is left, or maybe that's right. He's also against immigration and pro nationalists. So that's right. But he is left in terms of government largesse to Slovakian workers. What we need is more ordinary people and independent personalities. Yes, I would say the way forward lies through ordinary people and independent personalities. The Slovakians disagreed. Why do I say so? Well, here's some context. This is Radio Free Europe discussing the latest rising star of Slovakian politics, Igor Matovich. Listen for the name of his party. Ordinary people and independent personalities in second place behind the main governing party and the final poll before the vote even put him first. Ordinary people and independent personalities ordinary people and independent personalities did quite well a few years ago. They've since been decimated thanks to a backlash among ordinary people. The independent personalities collectively decided, let's go with the right winger, or maybe the guy's the left winger. I don't know. France and Germany can't agree on this. Just definitely not Mr. Ordinary Person guy, who happens to be a wealthy millionaire. In a way, it's good that the Republicans and Democrats in America have had the names Republicans and Democrats for a while. Those brands don't mean anything except the parties. Can you say, oh, he believes in the Republic. No, she believes in democracy. Can you imagine if our current political parties were allowed to rebrand? Running against each other would be the teach American school kids that history actually happened and don't spit on the poor versus the men and women. Yes, we said women not ashamed of their country party. But Republican, Democrat, those labels have been leached of meaning as has hard right or to an extent ultra MAGA. I think what explains the motives and votes of the eight defectors is a mix of politics, self-interest, rational self-interest, or perceived rational self-interest, certainly raging egotism, and in some cases, genuine delusion. But the real thing is that There's only eight of them. You could get eight out of 435 people, you know, less than 2% to agree on just about anything. I'd sign up for QAnon having a hold on less than 2% of the population. And in an age of weakened party control, which remember we were all sold as a good liberating thing, you can basically get Eight souls to put their individual interests above all else. And that is true for members of Congress, for ordinary people, for independent personalities, and for however it is you wanted to find this guy. What's hard right about saying we should follow the law? Like the law requires these single subject spending bills and a budget to be passed. What's hard right about saying you, when you say 72 hours to read the bill? You don't get to waive that to pass a continuing resolution. What's hard right about saying something that spends more than $100 million should not go on the suspension agenda where it is not subject to amendment? The things I am fighting for are good government. Oh God, Matt Gates is agreeing with me. I guess I'm not as independent a person as I'd have liked to believe. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the C-L-F-A-O of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in close collaboration, hand in glove, if you will, with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. Lipson's AdvertiseCast, for the advertising experience of a lifetime. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist to learn more. Umpruji, purudu, puru, and thanks for listening.